The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you have told us in your word, Psalm 104, just one place. You have told us that you are God. And as that whole psalm recounts, you make the earth, you control the, the places where all the animals and all of nature moves, how it moves, when it moves. You said to the flood, let it rise up and cover the earth, and then you said to the waters, recede and stay there. You direct the night in which the animals come out, and then you make the day in which man rises up and does his or her work. You speak into existence and you call to account you are God. And at the end, the psalmist proclaims praise to you and then asks you that you would cleanse this creation of wickedness. Make it to be no more. We forget that sometimes, that the earth is plagued with wickedness and that it must be made no more. Hard to forget that this week. And so we ask you, Lord, move on the earth, the earth that you have made, the earth over which you reign, the earth that you are directing in your time and towards your purposes. We pray that you would bring the day that you have promised when wickedness will be removed and be no more. In the words of another psalmist, teach us then to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. To realize that we are travelers here and that this is not our home. And Lord, please bring this new heaven, this new earth cleansed of wickedness and take us to that place forever and ever in righteousness and in justice full of the glory of the Lord covering all of that earth as the waters cover the sea bring that day 
And in the meantime, Lord, as we walk this earth in this reality and look around at it and see things which cause us to fear, would you give us hearts of faithful, patient obedience that wait upon you and trust you? Lord, that's the message that comes home to us from today's passage that we'll look at. And I pray, Lord, build it into us, build in us patient, faithful obedience. awaiting on You to do what is right in the timing that You know to be best, in the way that You know to be best. Give us trust. Lord, speak through Your Word, I ask You. Make this ancient text come alive and and touch us today and change us today. Make us a different people today and tomorrow and the next day. Build Your church Lord, You spoke Your Word to us and and it is given to us to teach us and to rebuke us and to correct us and to train us in righteousness. And I pray that You would send Your Spirit among us now in power to make that so. That my weak and confusing words would be made straight and clear and would have Your touch on them so that You would speak and would change us and make good Your promise to Your people to mature us and grow us, to conform us to the image of Christ. He is our great prince who looked at the world broken, looked at the world in sin, looked at the world that would be frightening and rested faithful to you and triumphed. Lord, help us to follow him, make us like him. Use your word this morning, I pray, and I pray for his glory and honor in the midst of us, his growing people. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 13. In that chapter we see that Saul has been crowned king and has officially stepped to the front as the leader of the people of Israel. We saw last week in chapter 12 that Samuel still has a role. He's going to remain the prophet of the people and he will be praying for them, interceding. And he will be teaching, guiding them in the way that they should go and the way that is good and right. So he still has his ministry as a prophet among them. But Saul has stepped forward to become king. And last week we saw that the challenge from Samuel the prophet to all the people of Israel, as as well as the king, the challenge, the call that he issued to them was one of covenant faithfulness. It was a challenge to them, a challenge to us. We, the people of God, are in covenant with God and are called to faithfulness to, to God, this God of the covenant, if we hope to enjoy the blessings that come from walking with God, the God of the covenant. With your whole heart, keep fast to him, end of 14, then it will be well. And on the other hand, verse 15, but if you will not, if you will not hear his voice, if you will disobey the commandment of the Lord, then his hand will be against you. Two verses that summed up the the basic teaching of the passage, calling the people to faithfulness and obedience. And that's the setup for our chapter this morning, chapter 13. The requirement laid before the people and before the king, and now we'll see how Saul does with it. Up to this point, Saul has been presented to us in very positive light. We have seen that he is a humble man. We've seen that he is obedient before God. 
God has seen fit to pour out His Spirit on him in, in several strong, powerful outpourings to use him. He's used him to deliver the people in battle. He's anointed him king. So he is now charged to lead beneath the great king in faithful dependence upon him. And now we start, and it immediately unravels. Immediately. This chapter is a tragic chapter. We've seen everything just coming together, everything building, and then it is fall off a cliff. So chapter 13 is a tragedy, but I'm going to read the whole chapter. Before I do, I need to point your attention to verse 1. Look at verse 1, because we'll immediately come to a question. If In your translation, you might see some blanks, some ellipses, some italicized words, some footnoted words, depending on what English translation you have. All of them are attempting to deal with, with the fact that in the original Hebrew, when we read verse 1, where there should be two numbers, there are not two numbers. It's attempting to kind of deal with that issue. It reads like a, a very standard formula, introducing a king. So-and-so was X years old when he came to the throne, and he reigned for Y number of years. Pretty standard. You can see it all throughout the Bible and other literature as well. It's just that in those two blanks, there aren't numbers in the Hebrew. At least not completely. There is the number two in the second blank that would describe the length of reign, but we know from these chapters and from the book of Acts that Saul was king for a lot longer than two years, some 40-some years. So it doesn't quite seem right. What's the deal? Well, there's a variety of answers, but I think the best explanation for this is one that keeps in mind the context and has a bit of irony in it. The context is not, and here's what the reign of Saul was like. The context is, here's the setup calling the people to covenant faithfulness, and here's how that fell apart right away. We're not getting, here's the reign of Saul, we're getting, here's the end of Saul. And the ironic bit is, and it only took a couple of years. Yes, he was king for 40, but actually only for a couple in God's eyes. God was done with him almost immediately. And we see that in our chapter today. Saul's going to reign for decades after this, but our chapter says that God has already moved on to next after just a couple of years. So as one translator put verse 1, Saul was of a certain age when he began to reign, and he reigned for just two years over Israel, and here's why. Verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gebeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. 
they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gebeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash, and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horan. And another company turned toward the border that looks down the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Chapter 13. The passage begins with the disposition of Saul's standing army, some 3,000 men or so. Remember that 1,000, as we've seen before, might literally be 1,000, but it might also be standing in for a unit, commonly used term. So it could be three units of fighters. Anyway, two-thirds are with Saul, and one's with his son, Jonathan. We find out later that Jonathan is his son. And Jonathan takes the initiative and attacks the Philistine garrison, and everybody hears about it. Saul blows the trumpet, announces it throughout all the land of Israel, and perhaps taking credit for it, maybe just taking responsibility, though. It's not quite clear. But all of Israel hears, and he calls them to rally to form an army. And unfortunately, all the Philistines hear about it, too, and they're angry. And they muster a huge army 
And they come to Michmash, the place where Saul was. They drive him off. And all of Israel sees that they have a problem. They are vastly outnumbered and outgunned. This is a technologically superior army. It says all this cavalry and all the chariots. Chariots were kind of the armored fighting vehicles of ancient warfare. Israel had none of them. Not to mention no cavalry. Not to mention no swords and spears. They had weapons. Fighting in this day is largely hand-to-hand, so you can kill someone with an axe or with a, a rod, you know, clubs. They had weapons, just not proper military weapons. Evidently, they'd been disarmed by the Philistines, and they are in trouble. And they know it, and they flee. to Every hole in the ground they can find, and some of them run out of the land, cross the river, and leave. Except verse 7, Saul stays. He goes to Gilgal, which is that place that we keep coming back to, that special place where he was crowned king, where the kingdom was renewed, where Samuel, back in chapter 10, told him to go. You recall back in chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel is setting up with Saul what was probably a regular habit. Because this was such a special place, He probably was establishing over the years, Saul, when you are in trouble, go to Gilgal, this special place. Go there to wait upon the Lord for seven days. The fullness of time. Completeness. Wait upon Him for seven days. And then I will come and I will complete this period of waiting with the proper sacrifices, the burnt offering and the peace offering, and I'll then deliver to you what God says. He's the prophet. He's the one who comes for God. So you wait on God and then I come and respond. That was years before, back in chapter 10. And here now, he knows, I'm supposed to go to Gilgal and wait upon the Lord and Samuel will come. And so he goes there and he waits. It says he was still at Gilgal. Everybody else is going, they're all leaving. He stays. And he waits almost long enough. How long was long enough? Until Samuel arrived. That's long enough. And he doesn't wait that long. He looks around, sees the army running away, deserting, and decides to take matters into his own hands and offer the sacrifices himself instead of the prophet. Probably doing it through a priest. But he takes matters into his own hands. Impatient and fearful, he stops waiting on God and offers the burnt offering. Now, a burnt offering, you read through the law, has a number of different usages, possible uses, but all of them deal in some way with with putting a covering over the community of God so that these, these people under this covering are right, are cleansed, are pure, and God has offered up to him a pleasing aroma. The sacrifice covers them, God's happy, And then when joined to a peace offering, the peace offering always came last, was offered right on top of the burnt offering, because paired together it says, here's the sacrifice, the pleasing aroma lifted to God, now we are at peace with God. Let us sit down and feast with Him. The peace offering was the only offering that all the common people could eat. They would eat the peace offering in the presence of God. Burnt offering, peace offering together. 
And notice, they never get to the peace offering. It's emphasized several times. He offered the burnt offering. And when he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel comes right in the middle, interrupts it. What have you done? That's the question. To which Saul gives a perfectly reasonable response. If you're looking around and living with what your eyes see, the army's running away. And you, the, the, the text puts emphasis on that. And you, you didn't come when you were supposed to. And there's a huge army less than 15 miles away, right over there. Huge. And they could come any moment. And so, what else was I supposed to do? I forced myself and I disobeyed God and I offered the sacrifice. And it's over. Right then. Done. Samuel's blunt verdict has a surprising ring of completeness. The Lord would have established your kingdom forever, but not anymore. The Lord has, not will, has sought out a man after his heart and has, not will, has commanded him to be prince over his people. You're done, Saul. It's over. It just started. Yeah, it's over. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel begins there and Samuel ends there. This is sobering. He's going to be king for 40 more years, but it's already over. God has said next and moved on. And Samuel got up and walked away. No peace offering. No word from the Lord. A massive army still sitting right over there. And all that Saul is left with is 600 unarmed guys. Which in a totally different context is not a problem. God used Gideon and 300 guys with trumpets. That's not going to happen here. And everybody knows it as Samuel walks away. This should, I mean, it's long over, so it's not as present tense for us, but it should almost make you cry as you read it. What a tragedy. He's waiting. He's waiting, he's waiting, and then makes one decision, and it's over. A surprisingly sad, abrupt ending ending that, that happens right here at the beginning of Saul's reign. It has something to teach us, I think. When we find ourselves in Saul's situation, called the covenant faithfulness, but looking out at things that are are frankly terrifying. This has something to say to us there from God through an ancient text to you and I today. Let me summarize it in in this sentence and then make two observations. 
the summary point for this morning. In our fear, Christ can lead us into faithful obedience. In our fear. Christ can lead us into our faith into faithful obedience. That's the summary. I'm just going to break it into two, into two different halves. And first, talk about what God requires of us, and then we'll come to Christ and how Christ makes that possible. Here's the first point, first observation. The Lord requires patient obedience, even in, especially in, situations that frighten us. The Lord requires patient obedience even in and especially in situations that frighten us. That's apparent from Samuel's verdict in verses 13 and 14. He begins and ends with, You've done foolishly. You've disobeyed the command of the Lord. What's required? Obedience. Obviously, the very same thing that he just warned them about in chapter 12 where he he said, even using similar language, verses 14 and 15, Don't rebel against the commandment of the Lord Don't turn away from His voice and rebel against the commandment of the Lord. Saul, you just rebelled against the commandment of the Lord. Obviously what He requires is obedience. He didn't obey Him when He offered the burnt offering. But if we move into that a little bit further and we ask, what exactly did He disobey? Where did He err? Well, it's not just a violation of office from the law, as in Saul's not a priest, so he can't offer sacrifices. That, that's, not, that's not the problem. Saul probably, we know from chapter 14 that he had priests traveling with them, and he probably used the priests to offer the sacrifice. Lots of other passages in the Bible talk about kings offering sacrifices, and it's apparent they're using priests to do it. So it's not just a procedural violation. Not something so simple as that. The real violation is seen in what Samuel told him in chapter 10. Do you remember that? Chapter 10, verse 8. You can look back at that. And when Samuel sets up this pattern, what he says is, Come here and wait. Wait upon the Lord completely until I come to you And do what needs to be done and say what needs to be said. And until that happens, you are supposed to wait for the complete length of time. That's God's command to Saul through the prophet Samuel. Wait. Which is a big word if you think about it. Wait. It's included in every call of God to us when He calls us to faithfulness and obedience. It's right in there with everything. A a simple example. Someone sins against you by insulting you. And a a quick temptation is to maybe respond in kind back, to defend yourself, to to say something mean. There's there's a a temptation there. But knowing what's right, I, I should in some way turn the other cheek and respond in love and speak the truth perhaps, but do so in love. That's how I am supposed to respond. And if I am to do that, there is an element of wait in that. Wait on God to defend me, 
Wait on God to establish what is right here in this little exchange we had. Wait on God to enact justice for this person's sin against me. Wait on God to defend my reputation amongst all the other people who heard this. In some way, there is a weight in every call to obedient faithfulness, faithful obedience, because I'm deferring to God to, in His time and in His way, establish me and secure me, and I'm not going to take that into my own hands and make it happen. In, in every call of God to you to obey in faith, there is a weight. Obedient living by faith involves waiting on God, trusting, believing that He, in His time, in His way, will do right. And Saul says, Come on, 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 come on. I mean, look at what's going on around. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Oh, forget about it. I'm going to take it to myself and do what needs to be done. Unbelief. You see, the, the weight and belief, or unweighting, unbelief, they are together and they are in every call of God to us to believe, to obey. Wait. Saul doesn't go there, which is tragic because he is driven to not wait, driven to disobey by fear. He's not driven there by some high-handed arrogance. I mean, we can see people, we, we know people, we see people, perhaps we have been people, who say, I don't care at all what God says, I'm going to do whatever I want. That, that's not Saul. He's hanging on in, in a, a commendable way. Everybody else is gone. Cockroaches when the light comes on. They're, they're running everywhere. And Saul, the light goes on and Saul stands right there 12 miles away from this horde and waits. Still, it says, he's still at Gilgal. And every day the pressure mounts. Every morning, there's no Samuel and 50 more guys left last night. And the next day, still no Samuel and 50 more guys left. It builds, it builds, it builds. He's watching the army run through his fingers. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. Until, in fear... He runs out of patience. Fear is also a big word. If wait is included, wait on God is included in every call to obedience, the opposite of that in every call to obedience is fear. The, these two go together. Because there is, in every call to obedience, there is also a fear in the one called, of some sort of loss, of some sort of danger, of some sort of threat, or, or perhaps knowing that something's going to come that you don't want. Back to the, the simple example of the insult. I'm insulted, and what I fear is the loss of, of my reputation among my peers. 
and they will think little of me. Or what I fear is being diminished and forever being one beneath this person. I don't like to be treated like that. Fear and weight are, are always right next to each other, right on the table in front of us, when God calls us to obedience. Trust me and wait, even while looking at this thing that causes fear. That is frightening. That is a threat. That is a danger. Saul looks at that and he looks at it and he holds attention for almost long enough. And that's why God, that's why God holds it off. Oh, can you see? The, the same God who controls the, the movement of the donkeys is the same God who controls Samuel's movement so that he shows up five minutes too late. The sacrifice just got lit up. And behold, here comes Samuel. He's testing What's in there? What's in there? I'm going to hold it off a little longer. Can you wait all the way to the end? You know, previously, I did not answer until the Philistine army in battle array was marching up the hill at Ebenezer and you saw the whites of their eyes. You still got 12 miles. Will you wait? Didn't think so. He holds the tension for, for, oh, for a while, for a while, for days, and then, no, gives into the fear and walks into what seems right in his own eyes. And it isn't just Saul that has that problem. That's where we live. I know I shouldn't, this is what it, what it means by he forced himself. I, I know I shouldn't, but what else was I supposed to do? I know I shouldn't, but what else am I supposed to do? I just can't stand it any longer in this suffering, in this humiliation, in this predicament. My husband's uncaring, insulting words are just too much. Ever heard that one? I could write a book about the number of times I've heard that one. Marriage, in extreme cases, the next line there is, so we're getting divorced. Wait, believe, trust, fearing all of the loss that this means. Give up. Sometimes in less extreme cases, it doesn't become divorce. It just becomes, I, I stop laying down my life for this other person, decide to live for myself because I don't know how else I can do it. I know he said, love your wife as Christ loved the church, but how? I, I can't do that. What else am I supposed to do? Who's going to take care of me? Ever felt like that, men? If she would only respond to me in a way that, that encouraged me and helped me, then I would love her. Wrong. Happens in marriage, maybe less specifically. That's a very specific example, obviously. Less specifically, does Psalm 73 resonate with you? The first half of it? When you look out at the world and see, man, the wicked prosper. I mean, here I am. I'm trying to wait on the Lord and walk with Him. And, and I attempt to pursue righteousness in my life and attempt to, to trust Him and not 
pursue idolatry of, of the world, but my goodness, my goodness, the wicked have everything. They are beautiful, they are powerful, they are well-connected, they are loved, they are filled with pleasure and money and health, and I sit at home with none of that. That's the first half of Psalm 73. And it, right, right in that is, wait. But I fear... Now, in that psalm, sometimes the wicked are mocking the believers in, in that psalm. But there is also that, but I fear that that's life and it's passing by me. Maybe nobody's actually making fun of me, but, but there's, there's a life there of, of pleasure and rest and contentment. And look at the fun that they have. And it's going right by. And you tell me to wait that there is more joy in your presence, but... They have a ton of fun, says Psalm 73. Is that your experience? Fearing what's missed or what seems to be missed. So enough of the waiting. I'm going to go get it now. What is it for you? What do you see with your eyes? As you look out at the world, you see with your eyes that causes fear and uncertainty to arise in you. I'm not talking about fear of the Lord. I'm talking about fear of, of some negative outcome, some loss, some pain, some hurt. What is it? I don't know. It's different for all of us. But, but what inclines you to take matters into your own hands and perhaps act contrary to God's Word? But not only act... Sometimes it just results in an attitude within us. An attitude, a heart level disposition that is contrary to be thankful in all things. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I would not act to pursue the, the first half of Psalm 73 and, and all of the life of the wicked. I would not act that, but I sure sit here envious and angry that that's not my lot. Is, is that what happens in you? Anxious, bitter, complaining, negative. In other words, what I'm trying to ask is look at where you sin because in every place where you sin, there is the fear of something that might come to you or something that you might not get versus the call to wait on me, believing me, and therefore obeying me. Wherever you sin, those two things are present. And when you sin, you're giving up waiting and giving in to fear. Think like that. Analyze yourself like that. And see the tragedy. There, there is a great warning here. And God, I, I think, at some salient moments in our lives, will do something very kind and will hold off and make us wait, as He did with Saul. And will raise in your heart this issue. Well, I'm not coming quite yet. I'm not going to do 
quite what you think, in quite the way you think it should be, quite how you think it should happen. What happens in you then when I do that? Do you wait another day? Do you wait another day? Do you wait another day? Let's see. It is kind of Him to raise this in us because it it calls out to us and shows us something in us and shows us what we're doing. Because when, when Saul and the people who follow him turn away and give in to the fear, what are they left with? They are left without the Spirit of God on them, without the Word of God leading them, and 600 unarmed guys. They're left to their own resources as Samuel walks away. Good luck. We face, in this world, we all face an enemy who is greater than you. He is luring you constantly, luring you to try to separate you from this good God who calls you to wait and to trust Him. He wants to lure you away so that He can lead you down an alley and kill you. That's what's going on. And you cannot stand against Him by yourself. You must have the power of God and the Word of God. You must wait. You must hold fast to Him. And sometimes, graciously, He raises this issue in our lives to show us where we really live. To raise before us a concern as you watch yourself give way. What we need is for God to to come near to us, to come down upon us and pour out on us His Word, His Spirit power. And He does that in His time and in His way. Saul knew that's what he needed and he tried to make it happen when he was supposed to just wait. Do you believe that what you need in life is not a solution to this moment's problem? That what you need in life is for God to come upon you in all of His goodness to lead and to guide you in the way that you should go and to give you power in your heart to change you? That is what you need. That is what He promises to give you in time. Wait. That's what spiritual renewal and revival looks like. A waiting that is steadfast and holds to Him and hopes yet today for God to come. And then one day, He does. In, in little ways throughout our lives, perhaps maybe in a big way. He expects of us, He requires of us, Patient, faithful obedience, even in and especially in the midst of things that frighten us. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where we find out what's really in us. And that then, right on the other side of that, is where we find God, the one you need. He only comes as we wait Await the hand of the Lord to lift us up in due time. And so Peter calls us to humble ourselves, therefore, under His mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time.
casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. First Peter. That's the call to us, the people of God. And we see a tragic example of Saul falling down and leading the people away from that. We need that. We're called to it. And graciously, God does something really good. He removes out of this role of leadership a prince who will not wait to bring in one who will and who will lead us into it also. And that's the second point. Second observation. I'll be more brief here. God has raised up a prince to save us from all our fears. God has raised up a prince. That's, that's that under king. We've seen this term before. Saul was the prince. And God has raised up another one to be prince who will save us from all our fears. This was Saul. And as he says, Samuel says to him, it would have remained Saul, but it isn't going to be Saul. He has already called forth another one, a man after his own heart. And he has commanded that one to reign. Now, if we just are looking purely at at history here, David doesn't come up for a couple chapters yet. Samuel has not yet visited David. David knows nothing of this. God's speaking in the sense of divine decree. I have said it is so. I will yet carry it out in time, but I have decreed it. This is what's going to be done. And we know who he's talking about, David, the one who will shepherd his people, who has a heart after God. David will stand where Saul fell. When David faces the call to wait in the face of all of his enemies who frighten him, him, namely Saul, he waits and he waits and he waits and he refuses to lift his hand to take the life of God's anointed. He waits until God decides to take Saul's life. Again and again and again, he makes that point throughout the following chapters of 1 Samuel. David does a remarkable job of waiting and believing that God will do what God said he would do, put him on the throne. So we await David, sort of, because it wouldn't be hard to look through David's life and also find where David did not. Wait. So David's throne is established, but we're not really waiting for David. David dies and isn't sitting on his throne anymore. We're waiting for one in the line of David. Jesus. Jesus perfectly modeled, patiently waiting upon the Lord in the face of what is fearful. Led into the wilderness, 40 days hungry. Satan comes to him and offers him all kinds of good things. You realize in the wilderness temptations, what Satan offered to Jesus was right and appropriate. And Jesus had actually been promised all those things from another hand at another time. And so he waits 
in the face of all that is fearful and waits all the way through the imminent death on the cross, waits all the way through their believing, not that God will save him from it, but God will save him through it. And God raises him up from the grave, alive, delivered. Christ is the one whom we're looking for. Christ is the one whom the Lord raised up to save us from all our fears. How, though? We need to ask how. By show and tell. Everybody's played show and tell before. If you've been in kindergarten, you've done show and tell. You, you show something, and then you tell. You explain what it is. You explain why it, it, it's relevant to the situation, why it's important to you, why you like it. You show, and then you tell. Christ is the prince, the king, that leads us out of all of our fears, that saves us from our fears by show and tell. He shows us something and He tells us about it. Another way I could put it is He brings to us the kingdom of God. He shows it to us and tells us about it. In written word, by the Spirit's power, He explains to us something that is experienced by us. Seen. Shows and tells. If you're a Christian, and and if you're not a Christian, this is what could be for you if you would trust Him. If you're a Christian... What Christ did at the cross is deliver you from the greatest of all fears, the fear of the wrath of God against you and your sin. And He has sacrificed not just the burnt offering, but the peace offering. And has declared that between you and God, there is peace. Sit down and feast with Him. So He, he has done something. And then what that means is He delivers onto you an experience. He moves into your heart. The Spirit of God, God Himself, moves into your heart and begins to change you inside. You have a different life experience. And if you don't, you should ask if you're a Christian. There's a different life experience. And then he explains, you know what this is? This is the kingdom of God come down within. This son, daughter, this is communion with God inside of you. I remember the first time that I got a little glimpse of this. I was a, I was a pretty new Christian, a very early in college, I think it was the beginning of my sophomore year in college, and I found coming out of my mouth words, arguments that were contrary on some very specific subjects, that were contrary to words and arguments that I remembered having with people in the previous school year. And I, I experienced something, I saw something, I saw myself here and knew that I had been here, that I had believed and said other. And I thought, what is going on? And then it was tell, it was explained to me, what you are finding is God at work to change you. 
to renovate, to renew your thinking and your feeling such that you now actually are different. You're not just towing a party line wishing you were the other. You are different. That's God at work changing you. That is you communing with God and Him transforming you. Really? That happens? Yes. And if it doesn't happen, you should ask if you're a Christian. That happens. You actually, Christian, you actually have a relationship with God. When you meet with Him, He shows up every day in exactly the same way, like clockwork. No. No. We don't control Him. He's God. But He shows up. And He meets with you. And He talks to you. And He changes you. You are experiencing the kingdom And the second piece, that's the kingdom in here. He is also bringing the kingdom out there. Showing it bit by bit and telling us about it. As you watch other people be changed. As you watch Him answer, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As it happens, little by little by little by little in other people, as a community of people are gathered, and as we as a people are changed, you see, that's God at work. The kingdom coming in the world. Now, how does that chase away our fears? Well, back to the tension here. I'm commanded to wait on God who promises in due time to lift me up. And here's this offer, or here's this threat. And as He shows us and tells us about the kingdom here and the kingdom out there, we are finding increasingly evidence that is persuasive by the Spirit's power, is persuasive evidence that He is worth trusting. That He actually does come through. He presents the evidence to us and explains it. And piece by piece by piece, a structure is built that says, waiting is worth it. At the bottom is the cross. And every instance of change in your life and change out there and in other people's lives is another piece on that. Now, that must... God God must be doing that in your life or you're not a Christian. And you must be looking at it because there will be times when you hit your internet browser, you open up the paper on a Friday, and you see something that says, whoa. Can God be trusted? Is God here? Is God good? Whoa. And right in that moment, you have a decision to make. Do I trust the Word of God and the Spirit of God with the evidence that I have seen, or do I trust my eyes? And that's a hard question on Fridays like this last one. 
And I understand, if, if I was actually talking to somebody, if, I, if we were in Connecticut right now and I was talking to somebody who was a little closer to it, there would be a, a lot of nuance to this and a lot of other things said. I, I'm dispensing with that now because it's already 12 o'clock. I heard somebody's watch beep. And we're not in Connecticut. <laughs> okay? So I, I just want to be clear that there are other things to be said here. But we, as a people, have to start somewhere. We have to start with what God has shown us. The tomb was empty. Fact. I am different. Fact. You are different. We are different. Start with things that we have seen. Facts. And what God has said about them. And then turn to look at things on Friday, things in our marriages, things from, from the world around us, and, and then interpret that stuff through the former, through what God has said and what God has done, what He has shown us and what He has told us about it. That has to be the way it goes or you will be lost and left to your own resources which are feeble and inadequate. God is real. God has come in Christ to make peace with you. It's true. Gloriously true. It's gloriously true. He's at work to change you. Is He done? Absolutely not. Is He doing it exactly like I think He should? No. Thank goodness, I'm a fool. That's true. So are you. That's true. Understand, you have far less idea what you actually need than you think. Any of us who are parents and deal with kids have seen that happen. We think one thing is best, one thing is right, one thing is the way it should go, and it isn't. So is God done working on me? No. Is He working like I think He should? No, of course not. Is there more to come? Yes. But has much happened already? Yes. Praise God. He's raised up a prince, a king, in fact, who delivers you from all your fears. The fear of the wrath of God, He's made peace with you, and He has promised, basing it on really good reasons to trust Him, He has promised that He will, in due time, lift you up. So wait. Particularly in the face of fear. He's a good God. He has the world in His hands and He has you in His hands. And there is a time coming when the prayer of Psalm 104 gets fulfilled and all wickedness is wiped away and we live with Him in glory. Wait for Him. Wait on Him. Wait for His shalom to come. It is coming. Let me pray. Lord, we need You. We need You. We need You. And I thank You that You have made Yourself available to us by closing the gap in Christ. 
by removing the sin barrier in Christ, by opening our blind eyes, by giving life to our dead hearts. And now we struggle to walk with You. And so I pray again, graciously draw near and spread the reign of this King wider and deeper in our hearts. Show us again what You have done and explain it to us again in a way that persuades us so that we are renewed in our minds. Spirit, that's Your job. To show us Christ. So I ask You to do that even now as we sit and pray. Would You do that with some here who who have a particular need? Would You call us to patiently, obediently wait? We look to You, Lord. Our eyes are on You. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.